Welcome to Spark Partners, Sparkcom show. Uh, we're excited to have you here for the uh, next episode of our video podcast. How are you doing, Adam? I'm doing great. How about you, Manny? Doing very well, thank you. Uh, we've had a couple of shows with some uh, very good feedback on the content from both uh, small business owners and some uh, more seasoned, seasoned executives that really enjoy the, the sort of the out of the out of the box and think mentality that we uh, uh, ascribe to. And that kind of led me to, to think about the core mantra that, we, that you and I ascribe to here with this show, with our whole uh, community, with our coaching, with our course. And it all kind of comes down to this idea, this concept of disruptive innovation, correct? Okay. So I wanted to have you sort of walk us through uh, what, that, what that is, what that looks like, and uh, give us some color of what, uh, what your take on that is and what your part in the market of that, of that is as well. Sure. Well, for innovation really wasn't a big deal until about 20 years ago. Uh, in the history of business, what you had were people out there pretty much trying to figure out how to do more, better, faster, cheaper, improve things, very tactically focused. And then they would have, if they had a little extra money, they would invest some money in new technologies typically you know, basically trying to get a patent. So like, oh, could we use a new kind of a material? Could we use a new kind of a, of a circuit? Something like that, right? So if we can go get a patent on it, then let's figure out how we would use it. And it was something that was on the side. You know, people had an R&D center, a product development center. And, uh, and so typically what they'd say is, well, what kind of R&D are you doing? Are you doing kind of university level groundbreaking stuff? Or are you trying to do something that's going to make the next product? Right? So they developed, that was the way of thinking. Um, and they, DuPont and IBM were the kinds of corporations that would invest, you know, really, really big corporations that had lots and lots of money would have these research centers, General Electric, General Dynamics, you know, other examples. But the vast majority of people just had a product development center saying, well, our innovation, our inventions, they didn't use the word innovation, they said inventions were related on making the product a little bit better. And it wasn't until the 1990s that we started to take a look at innovation through a slightly different lens and say, well, actually, what are you trying to do with, your, with these inventions? And, and do they have to be inventions? You know, an innovation could be more. It could be something that you couldn't patent. You know, it could be an approach to a new market, a new way of selling, like selling online versus selling in a store, for example. That's not patentable. That's not an invention. But it's an innovation to your business model. And that was when we started to say, well, what most people figured on was how to try to do a little bit better. Like I said, more, better, faster, cheaper was the mantra all the way up into the 1990s. And then we started to say, wait a minute, what if I actually took these ideas and I tried to do a whole order of magnitude better? So not just a little bit better, but like an order of magnitude better. You know, instead of delivering my product in, a, in two or three weeks, take an order, get the product to the customer in two or three weeks, I would say, I'll take an order and give it to you in 15 minutes, right? It's huge improvement. And so when we started thinking, well, maybe we could apply some technologies or group technologies together to make these very, very large leaps was when the term disruptive innovation came along. And so then out of Harvard, you had a group of guys led by a fellow named Clayton Christensen who started to say, could we categorize these innovations? And they said, well, 
But yeah, they said these ones that allow these dramatic improvements in some form of the business, like I said, you know, instead of in a business to business world, you tell me your spec three weeks later, I give you the product. We make it much quicker, uh, like a day or an hour. They said those are really disruptive. They change the business model and they allow the person who makes that change to gather a huge amount of market share, significantly change the market. And they said, but what most people do is what they call sustaining innovations, meaning I'm going to be a little bit better, you know, more better, faster, cheaper. And they said, well, maybe that's a good idea. You know, should you invest in disruptive innovations because they're so much bigger and they're so much harder and you don't know if it's going to work. We don't have a methodology for implementation. So does it make any sense to do disruptive innovations? So there was a lot of work done. And what they discovered was that sustaining innovations don't really add much to your bottom line. They don't match the top line, maybe for a year, but they add nothing to the bottom line. Well, why? Because when you make these small improvements, competition can copy them. So you, you make a small improvement, you get the product out there, and everybody says, oh, that's, that's better. And, uh, but then the competition says, well, wait a minute, we can figure out how to do that too. And so your sales gains don't last, your market share improvements don't last, you don't get any profit improvement. And so looking back over about 50 years of innovations by, you know, in the 1990s when we're looking at this now, we said it's been the last 20 years, uh, what we're able to identify was that only, you know, these sustaining innovations provided very short-term profit improvements that lasted generally less than three years, usually generally less than two years, and they contributed only about 6% to any kind of a profit improvement. Whereas when you did these big disruptive innovations, you know, where you really change things, you know, like, hey, instead of, you know, steel, let's take an example, you buy steel from Bethlehem Steel, and they would say, great, we'll ship that to you in three weeks. So we've got this giant mill in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And then along comes this company, you know, and it's a, they say, we're going to build a mini mill. We're going to put it right next door to your plant. You place an order, and we'll get you the steel tomorrow. And so that was a tremendously different approach. What they discovered were those people could get double-digit market share growth. It was much, much faster. And then what they would do is they could also make more profits. And they said, well, why don't everybody do this? And what they discovered was that most people saw the, the initial efforts at the disruptive innovations as not being very good. You know, it's like the steel that was made in the mini mill was not very good steel. They focused on rebar, which was very, very low-end product, mostly a commodity product, didn't have a lot of margin to it. So the people said, well, hey, you know, the competitors would say, I'll give them that business. It's small, it's low margin, it's commodity. If they want it, they can have it. But the way these disruptive innovations, they start with low quality, but then they get better, right? So we see this now, now that we see this method, this happening all the time. We see uh, Kodak invents digital cameras. The quality is really bad. I don't know if you can remember the first digital cameras, but you know, a lot of people, if you try to take a picture, you just click and you wait it before the thing, you know, would even get you a picture. I remember that. It was very grainy, and you had no good way to print it, and it just looked really, really bad. And that's why Kodak didn't go develop that disruptive innovation. They said, wait a minute, we've got film, we've got all these kiosks, we've got everything to make this wonderful, and it's super high quality, really, really high quality. So the digital was just so low quality, they said, yeah, why would we bother with that? But then Minolta got a hold of it, some companies out of Japan, uh, Sharp, and they started to just improve it, and they found that by they can improve it very quickly. So that's another example where we see the disruptive innovation now kind of comes from behind, gets to the higher quality position, and then the original competitors sitting there going, oops, oops, more, better, faster, cheaper isn't going to help me. By that time, is it, is it too late? 
almost always. And the reason is that the new competitor with the disruptive innovations has had years to perfect it. And so the, 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 the company that's in the position of doing the sustaining innovations will typically say, oh, if the steel gets better, we'll copy it, right? If their relationships with customers get better, we'll copy it. And we'll just come in and we'll, you know, we'll wait until they spend all this money to develop the innovation. And then we'll just come in at the last minute and we'll copy it and we'll keep everything in order. What they missed was the fact that the people developing the disruptive innovations spent years perfecting it. Yeah. And so when they knew the, the original guy comes in, the guy who's not losing share, the original market leader, what they discover is it's not nearly as easy as they thought it would be. Oh, oh no, 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 no. Now, making the higher quality still many meals much harder than they thought. Having a good customer relationship requires entirely different processes in terms of working with customers, getting paid, and, and all that they have to learn. And so that time to try to learn, they're so far behind that they just really never get there. Understand. Now, as a, uh, a small business owner or a, an executive or even a startup person, you're sitting here looking at your, your business, your idea, whatever it might be. Are there any things that they, they can look at or apply to their business as a, as a rega in regards to disruptive innovation? I mean, is it something that you can put your idea through or is it something that you bring into your, your company? Is it a mindset? Put it in perspective to the individual making decisions. Yeah, so a disruptive innovation provides an order of magnitude improvement in some metric that's important to the customer. So, for example, could I make the quality of the product 10 times better? Could I make my ability to, 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 to uh, deliver the product 10 times better? Right? Can I make my customer service 10 times better. So think that's the disruptive element is that it's a dramatic improvement in something that is important to the customer. Now, does that mean it's expensive or that it takes a lot of development time or money or R&D or patents? And the answer to that is no. You can have disruptive innovations that aren't that expensive to get done. What determines the success or failure of a disruptive innovation is how hard it is for the customer to use this. So if I'm saying, okay, I'm a new core and I'm a mini mill and I want to build a plant next to the, here in your local town and I will deliver it in one day, what are you asking the customer to do? You're saying, well, you could place the order with Bethlehem Steel or you could place the order with me. And that's not much of a change. It's not hard for the customer to do that. And yet they get this order of magnitude performance improvement in delivery. So where we see disruptors that do well is whenever the, the disruptor thinks through, how do I make this easy for the customer? If there's a lot of change on the part of the customer, like for example, if you said, well, yeah, we've got this, we'll put the mill next door, but you know what? You're going to have to change your acceptance you know, facility uh, we can only do this with a specialized truck or, you know, now all of a sudden the customer will go, wait, wait a minute, that, now, it's, now it's hard. You're making it hard for me. If you make it hard for me, it's going to be, I'm going to be a lot slower to accept that innovation, right? So let's give some examples of where people miss. Um, I like to talk about Segway. Okay, so I see so many cool products. I mean, in this job, 20 years, people show me cool stuff all the time. And the question I'll often say, and I'll say, that is really, really cool. But what's the order of magnitude improvement I get out of that? 
why is that really going to be helpful for me? So in the case of Segway, you know, I, here I am, and, and I, I can get around in a car, a motorcycle, a bicycle. I can walk. I've got all these methods of transportation, right? And somebody says, well, here's this Segway. Like, that's, that's really cool. But what need does that fulfill that I don't have filled today? Where do I have an underserved need that you're giving me an order of magnitude improvement? And there really wasn't any, right? It was very, very difficult to sit down and say that you could do something with this that you couldn't do with an alternative product um, that was, you know, just fit right into the business. So, like, you know, those very, very small little Jeeps that they came up with for the post office guys to drive around in, they didn't cost any more to buy that little Jeep than it cost to buy the Segway. And yet that was much more traditional. It was easy to drive. It felt like it was safe. Whereas if you gave the postal guy a Segway, he had to learn how to operate it. He had to, you know, figure out how much more he could carry or not carry it. You know, it had all these issues with it. So it was hard. It was hard to adopt a Segway. So there was never a market for it, right? You never, you never identified this customer metric in which they gave an order of magnitude improvement. And so that's the big thing I would say why if I – if I put cold water sometimes on an entrepreneur, it'll be, what's the thing you're doing for the customer that they get an order of magnitude improvement that they're going to be like, oh, I, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to make this switch. Yeah. And I remember the, the founder of Segway, uh, if you remember the, his famous quote, was that uh, cities would be redesigned entirely to, to accommodate uh, the segue because it was going to be so wildly popular. Right. Right. Now just think how hard that is. You're now saying I got an innovation that's so powerful that millions, billions of dollars will be spent on infrastructure change. That, if you believe that you're probably not going to succeed as an entrepreneur, you got to have something that's just unbelievable. You know, it's got to justify billions of dollars of investment in, in infrastructure change. So that's one of that's, you know, what is that? The thing I always say to entrepreneurs, what is it you're doing for the customer? What's the value proposition, right? What are you doing that makes their life just super, super easy? And if you, if you can identify that, then you've got a good chance of being successful. Yeah, very true. Very true. And, uh, you know, a lot of people in their mind get uh, the idea of disruptive innovation or something being innovative as something that is very fast to market that, you know, these entrepreneurs have these ideas. They want to be in the market in, you know, 12 months, 18 months. Can you talk about the, the real cost of innovation? You know, you kind of touched on it here a few minutes ago, but, you know, companies that are, that are nimble. I mean, if we use the example of, of the classical example of Netflix and, and Blockbuster, I mean, how long was that saga, right? <laughs> Actually, that was very quick, right? That was only about a five-year experience that Netflix took down Blockbuster. And again, if you think about what their disruptive innovation was, they said, well, you can, it was convenience. You know, you order the video and it comes to your house, keep it for as long as you want, and send it back whenever you want, right? It was convenient. And so the question was, was that more convenient than going to the Blockbuster store? And for a lot of people, it was. And it wasn't necessarily more convenient on the front end, but it was far more convenient on the back end. Now, after I've watched the video, do I want to keep it for another day and watch it? Or do I want to, you know, do I want to jump in the car and go back to Blockbuster just to return this? 
or do I want to keep it for another day or hey just put it in this box and send it back and it's done so that back end of getting the thing back to the store was the super convenient part for people and that was the breakthrough that was what made it disruptive it made it to where go oh, I don't have to get my car go take that thing back people thought that was a huge benefit and so they started doing more and more Netflix rentals, right? And it doesn't seem like a big deal, but by identifying that, what, what was really valuable to the customer, and then just getting better and better and better at that, Netflix was able to constantly keep people thinking, do I really want to go to the Blockbuster store? You know, and then they get real, real clever with it. Like, well, you know, you never know if Blockbuster's going to have the video. Because the local store may not have it. We have to go to three stores before you get it. If you, if you send us the order, you guarantee you're going to get yeah. it, right? So they kept thinking about the things that made it hard or difficult or, or that you might not like about the existing infrastructure. And then they would solve that problem and make it easy for the customer. You know, the, the biggest thing in innovation and innovation implementation, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, is it needs to be easy for the customer. Customers don't really care if it's whiz-bang technology, at least they don't care very long. What they care about is, is this easy? Does it make my life easy? When, when you could take an iPhone and you could check your stocks, that was really cool. <laughs> I mean, like, you got to think about this. Uh, phones aren't everywhere. Not everybody has a mobile phone, but people who do tend to have money. So you have executives, you know, you have uh, wealthy people. They've got phones. And now you say, oh, if you have this phone, you can check your stocks. Oh, and by the way, you can check the status of your airplane flight. You know, and, and so now this made their life very convenient, right? I don't have to get my computer to check the stocks. I don't have to get my computer or get on the phone to call to check the status of my flight. I can look at this right on my phone. And they said, wow, so the other phone costs $30 a month. This phone costs $130 a month. Yeah, I'll pay $100 a month for that convenience because it really makes my life easy. So they did. They paid this huge premium for iPhones for two years before they really got to where they were so popular that everybody carried them and, and they got, the prices collapsed a bit more. But really what started happening was nobody wanted the old phones, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, who wanted a phone that didn't have apps on it, right? Now, I, I remember um, BlackBerry. Um, yeah. I, I was in love with my BlackBerry. I loved that thing. I could type very quickly. I loved the tactile response. But I remember the death knell that the uh, CEO of uh, Research in Motion, you know, the parent company of Blackbuster, or I'm sorry, uh, BlackBerry, when he stood up and he said that we will never put cameras on our Blackberries. <laughs> I mean, it was already going down. And then when he did that, that was basically the end of it. Yeah. And, and he uh, did that because his... In his view, the corporation was his customer. He had the BlackBerry server. It was secure. And he said, if, you, if you're a corporation, if everybody in your company has Blackberries, it's secure. And he said, if you put photos on there, you're going to lose your security. And so he was listening to his customer. He was listening to the IT department saying, we want security. Uh, you know, they were saying, and so he said, I'm not going to put the camera on there because that's what my customer tells me. Ooh, big mistake. Big mistake. Now, the second big mistake that most people make is they sit there and they say, well, let's ask the customer what they want. Customers will only tell you, okay, I want it more, better, faster, cheaper, right? That's as far as they think. They have a way they do business. Help me make my business better, faster, cheaper. They're not trying to figure out a, you know, an order of magnitude improvement in some element of the business. So you as a supplier have to sit down and say, well, wait a minute. If you have this, you should take pictures of product failure. You can take pictures of a contract. You can take pictures of <laughs> order. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, you, you know, we can feed this into software. And it's like, ooh, 
wow. So like, it's not just fun to have a camera, it's useful to have a camera. And now all of a sudden, well, which is more useful? All the apps that are on the iPhone or the keyboard? Well, I think that um, you, know, you kind of hit on it is that uh, they, they were listening to the customer, but you've talked about in the past, the, the really the true value of something, right? What did Henry Ford say about his customers and the, the automobile? <laughs> he said he would have made a faster horse. Yeah, if he, he asked customers, he would, have did, he would have bred a faster horse. So how do you, um, how do you put that in perspective when, when somebody has an idea and they're, you know, especially startup folks, they're told to go talk to the customer, go hear the voice of the customer. So how do you, how do you tease out the, the true value of something versus the apparent, I just want it faster, cheaper, better, and so forth? There's two important issues if you're going to talk to customers. I'm not a big fan of that voice of customer type of analysis because it tends to focus on the business as it exists today. The, the first thing is talk to customers who've been alienated around the use of a product. Why did you quit using that product? What alienated you? Was it the customer service, the product itself, repair costs, maintenance costs? What alienated you about that product? So if you can find people that have been alienated, dropped away, those are the ones that you want to interview. The second thing is you'd say to somebody when they're using a the product, you'd say, okay, you got that product. When is it that you're least happy with it? What makes you, that gives you the most grief? Is it, you know, the billing cycle? Is it the, uh, some element of the use of it? You know, that kind of a thing. And so what you're looking for is the places you can offer this 10x improvement. Right? If I can solve that problem, would you consider buying my product? Right? And if, if people say, yeah, if you solve that problem, then it would be really interesting for me. I'd think about switching. Right? Now, if you keep the switching costs really low, then you offer this big improvement, low switching costs. It happens quickly. If you can say, well, I can solve that problem, but your switching costs are fairly high, then it's going to take longer and you're going to have to work closer with them and figure out how you're going to get them to get through that switching cost process. Got it. Understood. Um, last time we mentioned that today, we we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the, the sort of the foundation of, of disruptive innovation, as well as what you call FANG. So, um, Give us a perspective of what FANG is, and we already talked about a couple of those companies, but how are they going to be um, players in the pre-COVID new world we live in? Okay. So, um, theoretically, what the people who've studied stock market like to say is you need to have a very broad basket of stocks, right? And why? Well, because you want diversification. Well, why? Like, you know, and mostly getting down to they don't believe you can ever outperform the stock market. The fact that Peter Lynch did it for 20 consecutive years is considered odd. We just ignore that, right? Well, I say don't ignore that and realize that they're using a lot of mathematical models. And the reality is, is that you only want to own one stock. You want it to go up, right? So if you say, well, I want this stock and it's going to go up in value, then that's really all you need. You don't need this big portfolio. You don't need the losers. You just want the winners. And so, what we've learned is that what causes a stock to go up in value is its ability to grow. You can't make your company worth more money if you don't generate more revenues and generate more profits. So if you're, you know, if a company's flat, stagnant, not doing all that much in terms of revenue growth, well, they're not probably going to get much in the way of growth and dividends or earnings and the ability to, to grow. And so that's where this fang comes in. Facebook 
Apple, Netflix, and Google. Although now today we typically use two A's. We say Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, right? And so that is a group of five companies that have managed to demonstrate just consistent high levels of growth. So there's the revenues go very high up, and the revenues, the revenues are going up, the profits are going up, they're getting into new markets, what makes them very, very attractive. Now, why would I want to own Caterpillar Tractor? Right? It's not growing. Why would I want to own Boeing? You know, it's not growing. You know, and post-COVID, I'm picking on companies that post-COVID yeah. are going to have a really hard time of it. And I say, well, who's not going to have a hard time? It's the ones that are on those four big trends that I've talked about with you and that we put into the paper that we have for people that subscribe. You know, it's first of all, are you, you know, are you helping people be mobile? Second, are you helping them take advantage of the gig economy? Third, are you allowing them to get things done and be productive in an asynchronous manner? And four, are you embedding, uh, in, uh, embedding intelligence into your product so that it helps people's lives better, right? So if you do those four things, then you're on these big trends and you're going to pass where people want to go and you're going to get there. If you look at Facebook, Apple, yeah. Amazon, Netflix, and Google, they are right on those four trends, right? And they're constantly using those trends to help improve their offerings to their customers, so therefore, what we say, what I would say is, that's where you want to put your money. Now, I started doing that 10 years ago. People said, how doesn't it run its course? And I look around and say, how much do you think it's run its course? Just because it's 10 years. We have these companies demonstrating they recognize these big trends, and they keep developing product on those trends, which meets customer needs, keeps adding greater value. If you would have asked me as a kid, I used to love to go to Sears, by the way, when I was a kid. Uh, we, I lived in a small town. We'd come up to Tucson for the, you know, the big city and uh, we'd do some shopping at Sears. If someone would have told me when I was a kid that when I was an adult that Sears would be gone, I would have said, what are you talking about? Right. right. So what is to say that these, that these fan companies are going to be around? Kind of dovetailing off what you just said. What is, is, is there a terminal velocity to, these, to the growth of these companies or is there, um, can it just start, you know, continue innovating and going into new markets? All right, a couple of quick statistics. Pay attention to these, this is really important. One, what's their, love, what's their growth rate? So for example, all the companies that I named had growth in Q1 of 2020. So while COVID-19 was hitting the world and hitting their marketplaces, these companies managed to find ways to continue to grow. Right? That tells you they have a very, very close tie to their customers. So customers were quitting doing a lot of stuff, but they were not quitting doing the things that created revenues for those five companies. So that's really important. So you recognize you always want to look, are they growing revenues? And, and sometimes you'll have seasonal variations, so you can't just look quarter to quarter. You might have to look at this quarter versus a year ago, right? But you want to look at that growth. And, and the better that growth the better off things are. Like, you know, Netflix, for example, just keeps showing that they can add more subscribers, getting more and more product, right? The second thing, so this growth is what you really look for. And you want to watch that continuously. If a company is growing, like I say, I like this company. So get, you got my fang companies, watching them, or you might watch some others too. You PayPal, Square, I can think of other companies that you can say, wow, this is some good growth companies too. What you really want to look out for is a growth stall. And a growth stall is where you get two consecutive quarters of flat to negative growth or two consecutive quarters versus a year ago of flat to negative growth. That means that your revenue or your profits have stalled 
And then that's a very key indicator because what it shows is that somehow the market has moved and the company didn't stay on top of things, right? And so for six months, two consecutive quarters, the market moved and they did not move. They did not, you know, manage to continue to maintain their growth. That's when you want to really focus on what are they doing. You know, that's when you want to think about, well, I'm not sure I want to keep investing in that particular company. Maybe I should hold back, look at other companies that are maintaining their growth rates. Because growth stalls are often an indicator that a company leadership has changed, they've gotten locked into something, and now they've lost the ability to stay on top of trends. That's very powerful. And I think that uh, as a consumer, as an entrepreneur, you know, one of the things that we need to be more aware of is our surroundings, right? What are, what's happening in the market? What's happening in with the big players? And, um, you know, having a systematic way of doing that, is that possible? Is there a way you can look at key indicators in the market and, and especially in your market? So say, for instance, let's go back to Caterpillar. Say, for instance, you are, um, you own a dealership and you're trying to figure out what to do, right? You've got some base level business, but you know, you've got the new breed who came in and they want to be innovative, right? They want to think out, they want to think outside the box as, as they're told, right? Of course, we, we use the mantra of get out of the box and think. Um, so how, what would you tell that, that, that new generation that took it over from, from his dad, the new guy that runs the, uh, the, you know, the heavy equipment machinery company that wants to innovate? Well, I'd say sit down and think about those four big megatrends, right? How are you going to help your customers be more mobile? How are you going to help them lower their costs by taking advantage of the gig economy? How are you going to help them to operate in an asynchronous manner, which improves your productivity? And then how are you going to help them get, uh, how do you give more intelligence to them or solve more of their problems? I worked with a company years ago that made rubber hoses and fittings. Okay. Not an exciting company in terms of technology, not typically an exciting business, but a Caterpillar tractor got a lot of hoses and fittings in it, right? It's hydraulic stuff, right? And what we did is we sat there and said, how could we help our customers do this? And one of the things we realized was that when hoses and fittings break, okay, your equipment's down. So here you got a $300,000 tractor, or maybe it's just a $50,000 tractor, but it may be a $4 million crane, right? And you've now burst a hose and it's blown a fitting and this thing's sitting there doing nothing, right? Over this five, ten, hundred dollar part. Oh my. So your costs of breakdown are huge. Your costs of downtime are huge for this very small product. So we realized, okay, there wasn't a lot we could do to make hoses better, couldn't do a lot to make fittings better. But when those four big megatrends, we realized that what we could do was add a lot of intelligence. We could go to a customer and we could say, what is your equipment? And we could say, you know, you are running a risk of failure because uh, you've had this equipment, you've had it this long, and you've operated it this much, and we know some specs around hoses and fittings. So what we would like to do is take all of your equipment, put it into a computer, track it, and then let us start to get some backup supplies in terms of the things you would need if you blew a hose. And then when you, when you go down, we will be ready to go because we've gotten a contract with you to be your supplier, and therefore we'll have it in stock, we're ready to get it taken care of immediately. Or even better yet, let us do a contract with you to come out when your equipment's turned off and do maintenance service on it so that you never have the equipment go down. And then we could economically show that, wow, if those two things easily pay for themselves in terms of you know, improving, getting rid of the downtime. 
So what do we do? We added intelligence to something that looked like, look, it's a hose. It's a fitting. What's the big deal? Right? Exactly. Well, okay, but wait a minute. We could think about this and we could be a lot more clever about the customer's need and their pain point. And their pain, the biggest pain point was down equipment. So, yeah, you know, if, if, if it's going to be tough to sell a lot of these big tractors in this current e economy, right, then what can I do to help people keep their tractors running, right? And or, or other pieces of heavy equipment running. But look at those big trends. Can I make you more mobile? Can I help you get more productivity? Can I help you use the gig economy somehow so that you lower your costs? And then can I help you, so, can I provide greater intelligence to your business? Exactly. And I'd like to, to round out uh, our, our talk today with a little uh, plug for the, the course that we're developing now that will be released later this summer. That, that sort of teaches this innovative mindset, right? This is, um, you know, you, I just used this random example about the, the Caterpillar dealership and, uh, you know, it could be anything. You said rubber hoses, it could be um, uh, food delivery, it could be, you know, you name it. So can you just give us a, a quick thought on, on how somebody might learn from our course this summer? The first thing we're gonna do is help people understand how to classify an innovation. You know, how much is it a sustaining innovation versus a disruptive innovation? And so I have four classes of innovation. Um, you know, again, somebody, if they looked at Segway, would have said, hey, that's a very significant change to operate a Segway. It's not a simple thing. And you, can't, you walk up, you stand on it, try to drive it. It takes training. It takes time to use. So you have to be able to identify how complicated your innovation really is. And that's not looking at the technology or looking at the patents or that kind of thing. It's looking at how hard it is for the customer to use your product, right? Complexity is related to the customer's use of the product. And then what we're going to do is once we can help people identify the level of complexity of the product, recognize what they have to do with their customer base to get acceptance of the product. Because if you want to be successful growing and you're an entrepreneur with a great new idea or a startup with a new idea, you have to realize you're going to have to make people convert. So how do they solve the problem today? And then how do you get them to convert? How do you make it easy? How do you lower switching costs? That's what it's all about. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been a, a wonderful uh, half hour with, with you, Adam, and uh, we're excited to, to always have this uh, every, uh, you know, once a week. And so next week, um, I have a, a surprise to talk about next week, but uh, we'll just leave it at that. Um, thank you for your time, Adam. And you, uh, we'll Danny. talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you. Stay cool. Take care. Bye-bye.